Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. So today I have the privilege of... um, introducing Caleb Penner. So Caleb Penner, he grew up in this church. So those of you that have been here for a while probably know him. He currently serves at McLaurin Baptist Church as the youth and kids ministry worker. He's involved in Camp Wapiti. He's pursuing his master's degree and is involved in a bunch of other things that I'm not entirely aware of. I don't know, I honestly don't know Caleb very well, actually, basically just from what he posts on Facebook, but, (laughs) which is good stuff, but through others, though, talking with others, I have learned of his wonderful ability to blend fun and learning. I've learned that he carries the joy of the Lord as well as the love of the Father. I've learned that he has a hunger for all that God has for him. And this hunger has a way of awakening hunger in others. He shows up in humility and strength. Let's give a warm welcome to Caleb Penner. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a very wonderful welcome. I'm very honored to have heard those words. That's great. Uh, I was thinking early, I guess, even just a couple minutes I've been here, I've seen some familiar faces that I haven't seen for a while. It is so good to be here. So good to be here. <clears throat> I'm, I was thinking earlier, when was the last time that I was here and I got to share? And I honestly think it was like over a decade ago when I was assistant director for Camp Wapiti and I came and I talked about camp. And at that time, people didn't recognize me because I, I was known for having very long hair, but I had recently cut it. And so I came up to the stage and I said, hi, I'm Caleb Penner. You may recognize me. I'm Dave's son. And I, I recently got a haircut, so you might not recognize me. And a bunch of people applauded. They were like, oh, this is awesome. Well, I'm back and I have, again, a haircut. <clears throat> My hair is shorter than, <laughs> shorter than when you last saw me. I don't know if we can keep this trend going, though, if I ever come back in the future. Um, I'm going to pray before we start, uh, and I just, I'm really excited and honored to be able to share, and I pray that just the Spirit of God would come and touch our hearts this morning. So please join me in prayer before we hear the word. Father God, we give you thanks and praise, Lord, and already I've been touched just by your faithfulness, and... um, the faithfulness that has been shown in this place is really, really cool for me to see coming back after all these years uh, to be able to share here. I thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and we know that it will follow us, and we know that it will continue to draw us toward you, continue to call us toward that heavenly home, that heavenly reward that is our true home, where all of our lasting joy and all of our hope is truly stored up It's waiting there with you, and it it is you, Lord. We can't wait to see you again. I pray that our hearts would be tuned to the frequency of your kingdom this morning as we hear the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Um, This message is on God and money and treasures 
in heaven. God, money, and treasures in heaven. Uh, if you are here last week and you heard my father preach, the subtitle of this sermon might be, How Far Did the Apple Fall from the Tree? We'll find out. But in all honesty, the text that I'm coming from is from the, it's about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been a believer for any amount of time, uh, if you've been in the Bible for any amount of time, you will have had some familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount, absolutely, from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> and Jesus, in this, in these three paragraphs that we're talking about, he provides us with some really clear contrasts. Jesus and many, you know, Paul is very good at this too, is very good at painting spiritual pictures for us with, with youth, use of contrast. And so we have the earthly and the heavenly. And then next we have light and darkness. And the third one is really, really blatant. It's a clear comparison, God and money. And so what he's talking about in the first two, it kind of comes to a head in the third, and he drives it home with this comparison of God and money. And it's all in relation to our treasure, the attitudes and the affections of our heart. And so we're going to look at these things this morning. We're going to take some time to, to open ourselves up and ask the Lord to really speak to us and remind us and show us where we are treasuring, how we are treasuring, and how we can make some adjustments there uh, that will serve us and serve others well. Before we get into thinking too deeply about how this might apply to us, I want to help us to kind of get into the frame of mind that the people hearing this sermon would have been in. Can you imagine being one of those who had followed Jesus, his disciples, and coming up the mountain where he, he stops, he looks at his disciples, and he starts the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, the, the people who had followed Jesus and the crowds who had come around to hear him speak that day, they got to hear a message like none other. <clears throat> and as the message progresses, where he's pronouncing blessing on these people who were coming to Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I was struck as I was thinking about this message again, tied in with the, from the Sermon on the Mount, to hear Jesus say that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's the voice of the Messiah saying, what an incredible Thing to hear. Can you imagine being there? And this righteous man, this incredible person, this Messiah, this Savior, says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. I was blown away by that. And as he continues on, he says, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Not any words can pass away, not a single word can pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks these commandments and teaches others 
to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps these commandments and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a really important phrase for us to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, because the people who were coming to God, these disciples of God who were or Jesus, who were following him up the mountain and hearing him teach, they were about to hear a message that was very different in quality from the example that they had seen day in and day out from many of the spiritual gatekeepers and the spiritual leaders of Israel at that time. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we were able to see the positive aspects of what Jesus is teaching. But because we're in a different time. We don't necessarily see what it was like. We don't necessarily see the contrast that Jesus is drawing between the example and the object lesson that was there before the people of his day. And so when Jesus, after he says this, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce and oaths and retaliation and retribution. He talks about love and giving, and prayer, and fasting. And in each one of these phrases, he's bringing a new and a fresh teaching that was really the heart of God all along, but it wasn't at all represented in what the people were seeing, and what the people were experiencing. They were under a certain amount of spiritual darkness from their teachers, who were giving them poor examples. And so, in the phrases preceding this section that we're going to talk about, giving, prayer, and fasting, he's even explicit, and he says, when you give, don't give as the Pharisees give. When you pray, don't pray like the scribes and the teachers of the law. And when you fast, don't do it like they do. These were sheep without a shepherd. Their examples were so poor. But Jesus is coming to establish the truth of how we are to relate to God. And so, there's a contrast going on here between the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees, the example of the spiritual uh, leadership of the time, and he was contrasting that with his words and his teaching. And so it's going to serve us well to take a brief look, it's going to benefit us to consider the contrasts in money. How did the Pharisees approach issues of wealth and money? There's a lot that could be said here, but we're going to, I'll keep it fairly brief this morning. In general, the whole system, the religious system of Israel, was set up in such a way to continue to earn money, to continue to be viable from a financial perspective. And there was the, the geographical kind of power relations at the time were very interesting because Israel is not at all a fan of the theology of Rome with all of their gods and their pagan worship, but Israel is a vassal state in Rome. And so you have Caesar and the emperor and you have his uh, appointed rulers over the region. And in Jerusalem, that's Herod. Herod is the ruler of the region in Israel. And the power players and the, the, the temple chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't at all 
keen theologically to be friends with Rome, but there was an established balance of power there, and it worked for everybody, especially if you had a position of influence. It worked for everybody. This was especially true when Herod began undertaking his massive temple project. He was going to give the Jews a temple, and it, he, he taxed the region like crazy. It was an incredible amount of taxes for about 18 years to build this gigantic, massive temple. And it was going to be a monument of Herod's accomplishments. Rome was a, was a powerful nation, and they, as they conquered other nations, they didn't assimilate everyone into Rome worship. They said, well, you have to worship Caesar as God, and if you're good with that, you can have as much of your own culture and your own heritage as you want underneath. And so Rome was kind of trying to be like the museum. Look at, look at all the nations and cultures we've conquered, holding them up in a kind of like a glass case. And at any rate, there was this balance of power and there was this network of power and influence that had, to, it was the Herod and his family and the Herodians. It was the economic region of Tyre and Sidon which were cities that were kind of the financial districts. Back then, they were minting the coins that were used in the temple and other places in Tyre and Sidon. And the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were all kind of tied in together in this, in a, in a kind of you scratch your, my back, I'll scratch yours sort of situation. And we see that Jesus is actually a threat to this system. In He's a potential threat to this established order of political and economic influence. It's really interesting. Around Christmas time, we read in Matthew 2, uh, when the, the kings of the east come, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And we, we understand that part. But the next line says, And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why would all Jerusalem be troubled? Why would Jerusalem be troubled at the coming of their king? Don't they want a king? Well, if the status quo is working for everybody, well, if it's working for all the people that matter anyway, then perhaps we don't want a new king. Perhaps the thought of a new king of the Jews is actually troublesome because it's going to disturb, it's going to disturb the, the setup. When we see Jesus' teachings and we take a close eye to the kind of geographical air information and the, the areas where he is and who he's talking to, an interesting trend emerges. We see that Jesus doesn't ever have a problem with money per se. A lot of his messages that are around Galilee and the farming areas, the farming economies, uh, a lot of his teachings that are around um, the more agrarian places, he doesn't really ever address issues of money. And we know, we can know now through archaeology that some of those regions, they, they weren't as poor as maybe we thought. Galilee was, a, was, a, it was actually more well-off than people have thought in the past. And it's not a necessarily a poor area, but they worked, through, through, they worked the land and they worked farming. But as we get close to the financial centers or the centers of political power, Jerusalem, Jesus starts talking about money a lot more. You can see this in the difference when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the section we're in today, and the Sermon on the Plain, which is a similar set of teachings, but from 
Luke in Luke chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, which the people who have come to hear Jesus, they're from Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee. They're from Decapolis and beyond the Jordan. A lot of those kind of, they're working the land, they're entrepreneurs, they're making their own way. In those areas, he says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But when he's giving the same principles, but to a different crowd, in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, the same phrase, it, it's, it's not those people, now it's people from Judea and Jerusalem and the coast of Tyre and Sidon, the financial area. It says, blessed are you who are poor. He doesn't say poor in spirit. He says, blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. So Jesus is tailoring his message for what people need to hear. And he doesn't have a problem with money, but he has a problem with those who benefit from economic exploitation. And the chief priests and the Pharisees were fine with economic exploitation under spiritual pretenses. We see that happening in certain areas today, maybe certain faith healers or other groups today. And the history shown, has shown that it's nothing new. So some ways that the Pharisees were engaged in this sort of behavior and the temple system was set up to gain a lot of money off of the spiritual uh, impulses of the people. There's four ways I want to explain to you this, this to you. So the first one is the temple tax. The law required that the worshipers of God would give to the temple. They would contribute to the ongoing operations of the temple, and so there was a temple tax. But you couldn't just use any currency you wanted. There was a special currency. There was a temple shekel. And the court of the Gentiles was, became filled with people who were running money-changing business, where you, you're going to come worship at the temple. That's great. We're glad you're here to worship. You're going to need to change in your money for the temple shekel. And by the way, the exchange rate may not be very favorable. Okay? So that was one way. Another way was when people came to bring their offerings, that was obviously a lot of work to bring your sacrificial offerings, to bring your goats, to bring your birds, according to the law of Moses, to bring your offerings to worship. That was, that was a lot of effort. And so you could purchase at the temple, you could purchase your sacrificial animals right there. And it was much more convenient for everybody, but the prices were very, very high. The prices were very, very high. Now, if you did bring your own animal, because you did, couldn't afford one or you didn't want to afford one, maybe you wanted to provide for your family if you were poor, there was provision in the, in the law for you to bring, if you were poor, you could bring doves instead of the pigeons, for example. There was... God had made provision for those who were without. But the people would come and they'd bring their animals and they would have to be inspected before they could be accepted. Is this an acceptable sacrifice? And if the inspectors who were checking your animals, if they thought, well, don't you know this is for God? It has to be without spot. It has to be without blemish. Look at this. You dare to bring this animal to God? This is unacceptable. If you really want to worship God, you'll have to buy 
one of the animals that we've provided. And so in all of these ways, worship was, in, in, under the guise of making worship convenient and providing a service, we were actually providing a business and an opportunity for our greed to take control. But one of the most interesting ways that the temple system and those who were involved in it became a place of economic exploitation was in the area of debts. In Deuteronomy 15, some of you may be familiar with this little piece of, Judea, uh, of the Torah, of God's law. If you lend out money to someone who is poor, who's in need of money, on the seventh year, what happens to those debts? Does anyone know? They get canceled. That's right. That was a provision in God's law, a release of debt. Let me read in Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it, how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land you are... Uh, the land your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother who is poor. Rather, be open-handed, be open-handed and freely lend whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that I, so I will not give. Don't have a thought like that. Don't think that if the time of release is near, but your friend, need, your, your friend or your brother needs, that you shouldn't lend to him. Don't think that. That's a wicked thought. God's going to provide. Lend to your brother. So that was what God's law said. How well do you think the people did with that? How well would you do with that? If you have to release your debts every seven years and your brother comes, your friend comes and says, hey, I need $10,000, I need $5,000, I have lost my job, and you know that you're going to have to cancel that debt in a year, what do you do? Well, the, the people of Israel didn't do very well on this, and it was a real problem. And so the lawmakers at this time decided that there should be a solution. And Rabbi Hillel, around 5 BC, said, okay, we're going to make an addition to God's law here. We're going to make an addition to the law. And he thought it was really clever. We're going to say that because personal debts have to be forgiven, we're going to say that if you have lent anybody money, you can transfer that loan to the temple, which is not a person, it's a public entity. You can transfer it to the temple and then it doesn't have to be released. This was called prosbol, and it was an addition to the law, and it was designed to encourage lending again because people were being tight-fisted. They weren't giving to their brother. But it didn't solve the problem of the heart. What happened was people would lend to their brother, they would lend the money, and then before 
the seventh year, before the year of the release, and maybe it was even on the day, they would come to the temple and they would say, I, I give this debt obligation, I release it to the temple. And so now it remains in force. And so the temple became essentially a collection, collection agency. The temple became a collection agency. God's plan all along had been to release the debt. And if you can deal with that area in your heart, there's going to be provision for you, provision for my people. This addition did not make things better. It made it worse. And so people could come and they could give their debts to the temple. It would curry them political favor. It would curry them favor. And the people who owed money, who were waiting and hoping for that release, would never get it. These are just a couple examples of the Pharisees' attitudes toward money. When Jesus, later on, we'll come to the slide later on, but I'll just bring it up now. When Jesus gets to the very last part in Luke, when, when Jesus says, it's recorded, when Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money, it says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they overheard him and they sneered at him. They didn't understand they said, what's, what's your problem, Jesus? What kind of teacher are you? And so this is the environment that Jesus is speaking to. When Jesus is talking about heavenly treasure and earthly treasure, there's a, really spe- there's, a, there's a great amount of specific... Some of these people would have been hearing this and they, they would have specific examples in mind of this sort of spiritual attitude towards money and this spiritual attitude towards wealth. And so for us... Today, we're going to read these sections. I'd like you to read them with me. We'll read them, and I'm just going to ask God. Just going to ask God to embed these truths in our hearts. What examples have we seen? What examples are we living? We're going to ask God to speak to us through each of these, and we'll make some observations as we go. So let's read the first one together. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or vermin destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I read this, I I hear that word, store up. Store up is not, is different than gaining, okay? And I'll give you an example of this. There was a business person that I approached recently, and I just asked about potentially whether there would be interest in a donation to Camp Wapiti to help fund our kitchen reno that we're doing this summer. And I had an assumption I said, there's a lot of business going on. I know he's, even during the pandemic, there's been quite a bit of business going on here. And I talked to him. But what I found out was, he said, Caleb, guess what? You're right. The money has been coming in. Lots of, we've had, business has been good in that regard. Lots of money's coming in. But I've had so much going out. So there's riches coming in, lots of riches, but it's going out. This isn't, this isn't being stored up. 
Stored up is when it's coming in and it's just sitting there. Getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I see that riches are not a problem, but the flow is the problem. The flow is the problem. The people of Israel, they saw a temple that was collecting, it was money, money was flowing into it from all over the place. But where was it going? Where was it going? Debts weren't being released. There were poor and needy people all over the place. Where was it going? The temple was, and the Herodians, and there was rich, rich, rich. But where was it going? Jesus says, no, if you're going to store up, if you want it a treasure that will get bigger and bigger and bigger. It can't be earthly because on earth, everything is temporary. It comes and it goes. Our life comes and goes. Our money comes and goes. Our opportunities come and go. But in heaven, it's stored up permanently. Jesus Christ came into the earth and he left. But he went to heaven and he's there now. And he's building Houses for us. He's building mansions for us. Because in heaven, it's permanent. That is where the true and lasting things are. And that's where we want to be storing up. That's where we want to be accumulating. That's where we want to see the numbers grow. That's where we want to see things build. The second thing that I see here is that earthly treasure can be anything. If we stop for a minute and we ask, what is your, the thing that you treasure the most? It might be money for you, but it could be other things. It could be hobbies. It could be the praise of men. There are people who work very hard for certain recognitions, worldly recognitions, okay? And to be clear, those things are not a problem. There's nothing wrong with being recognized. There's nothing wrong with having hobbies or collections or, or, or earthly things, but if they're being stored up, if, if they're being accumulated and they're not going toward anything else, that might be a sign that we need to check in. Good news here is that our heart is going to follow our treasure. Our heart is going to follow our treasure, like it or not. This means that we can by God's grace and by the illumination of his spirit, by walking with him and walking with, in Christian community, we can learn to shift our treasure. How many of you have had to shift your priorities at some point in life, and it's been a bit of a hard go? I certainly have at times. And it's, oh, this is tough. We've got to let this thing go so we can go this way. But after a season, it becomes natural and our heart follows along. The other thing that I see here is that this was, and it is, it always will be an action verse. When it says to store up, that's something that you do. Okay, we don't just pray. In that sense, it's very similar to wealth or money. You, you want to you earn some money, you want to earn, you go to work. Well, if you want to store up treasure in heaven, you can't just sit around. It's not going to happen if we just sit around. If we want to store up treasure in heaven, that's an action word. That's something that we do with our time, with our resources, with our relationships. There's 
There's an intentionality here that I really want us all to understand. This is an action verse. There's, there's store it up. You, you do it. It's something that we do. It's something that we do. Let's move on to the next one. Light or darkness. Let's read it together. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Treasure is an issue of spiritual sight. If we are seeing, seeing life clearly, we don't have a problem treasuring rightly. If we are illuminated by the light of God, by the light of Christ, we see. We see people as valuable, more valuable than earthly possessions. We see Jesus as supremely valuable over even our own lives. It's not a matter of willing so much as it's a matter of seeing, and it's a matter of illumination. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Word of God. We need the community of believers to help us with these things. There's a scripture that says, and I think it's the Psalms, it says, in your light, we see light. When the lights are on, we see things clearly as they are. Use the analogy, if, if you go into your bank account, or if you go into a, your banker and you want, to, you want to talk to an investment expert, and you've got $100,000 that you want to put down on a good investment, and he says, okay, I've got two options for you. One of them is uh, 2% annual return, guaranteed. Um, the other one is, it's 12% and it's compounded monthly. Okay, so those are your options. Which one are you going to choose? <laughs> is, is any one of you going to choose 2% over 10%? No. When, when the information is there in front of you, it's easy. When you understand the concepts, it's easy to make the right value assessment. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. The more clearly we see God, the more clearly we're operating under the influence of his spirit, the easier it is to see. The easier it is for us to see where the true value is, where the heavenly treasure is. But if the lights are off, we don't always see where we're going. And it can be easy to grow blind. I mean, even as I'm saying this, I think about how many times in my own life I haven't made the best choice in this regard. We need to keep coming back to the body of believers. We need to keep coming back to the Spirit. We need to keep coming back to prayer. Say, God, open my eyes. Help me to see the people around me. Help me to see the light of heaven and how I can invest well. The other thing that is, stands out to me here is that it is possible to think that your spiritual vision, the light within you, is darkness. Jesus says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is it? If the light that you're following, if the light that's illuminating 
the decisions that are in front of you, if it's actually darkness, you're in trouble, and we're in trouble. I, I say this not to discourage any of you because the fact that we're here in church today together as people, I think we're going on the right track. But Jesus says, that Jesus says this, and we need to, we need to, this is just a call to, to stay close to Jesus, to stay close to the light of the world, to stay close to the light of Christ, so that we can have ourselves refined, we can be illuminated by his spirit, and we can see each other clearly, and we can see the truth, because there are times when we perhaps, we just, we, we don't always want to. And, and the word of God dispels darkness. The word of God dispels darkness. If we're spending time in the word, if we're spending time in prayer, if we're spending time seeking God through the illumination of the spirit, we will see clearly and we will know how to make the right investments and we'll know how to start storing up spiritual treasure, heavenly treasure. And the final section we'll read, God and money. Let's read this together. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and to despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Everyone has a master. Each one of us has a master. The thing, first thing that, that I notice here, and maybe you notice it too, we're, we are never the master. <laughs> we're always the servant. And it's always going to be this or that. If we think we're the master, <laughs> we're probably in darkness. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> it's going to be this or that. And money is an incredible tool. Amen? Amen. Money is an incredible tool. And it is a terrible master. It's a terrible master. <clears throat> kind of think about the idols that the people of Israel were tempted to make at, at, at different times. And you think about, think about wood, okay? Think about all that we can do with wood. What can we build with wood? Look at the architecture in this building. Isn't this incredible? You build homes, you can build just gorgeous artwork, Okay? Wood is a fantastic resource and it's a fantastic tool. But if you build a, an, a crude idol out of it and you bow down and worship that, it is not, <laughs> it is horrible now because of what it's doing to you. It's a terrible master. It can't lead you, it can't guide you, but what you can do with it is incredible. And it's the same thing with money. Money is an incredible tool. And I want you all to hear me loud and clear that, and, and you'll, you'll actually, I've got an example for you that we're going to close this message off with that may be encouraging you. If, if you have an opportunity to make money, to earn money, I would say, for, I would encourage you to increase your income by whatever godly means you can. 
for the purpose of blessing others and building up heavenly treasure. I don't want you to hear me say that you need less money. I want you to say, I want you to hear that God is sufficient, he's a good master, and that your money, you can do more for God with your money than you've probably considered yet. There is more good to be done there. Money is a terrible master. And if we believe what the scripture says, what Jesus says, that the meek will inherit the earth, that we will inherit the earth, what's your favorite holiday destination? Somebody just say it out. You could go anywhere in the world. Where are you going? Grand Prairie. Grand Prairie. Prairie. Hawaii. Hawaii. We got, yeah, Hawaii, okay? You think, man, it'd be good to get away to Hawaii this winter. Well, if you're going to inherit the earth, how would you like to own Hawaii? That is, that is literally what we're headed toward as those who will inherit, along with Jesus, all things. We are going to have more than, we are richer than we could ever imagine. And this is not a Scotiabank commercial. We are so rich in Christ through what he promises us. We are far richer than we dare to imagine. I think, I can't wait to, when I was a kid, I used to think, man, if I could own, if I could just own West Edmonton Mall, that would be the bomb. I go swimming in the pool anytime I like, and I would have, I would have go-kart races up and down the halls. And uh, I thought that would be great. But that's still, as ridiculous as that is, that still falls short of what Christ has for us in the inheritance that is coming. The world belongs to him. Everything belongs to Christ, and we inherit it all with him. Okay, and if we're going to inherit the earth, then all of a sudden those pangs of longing for the car or the house or whatever else, all of a sudden those things fade away because God's going to give us more He's providing for us more than we could ever, ever accumulate or receive on our own. And we just have to trust him, wait patiently. And it drives us to think, okay, well, what can I do? What is this money for? What are my opportunities for? And the scribes and Pharisees, when they heard Jesus say these things, in Luke's gospel, the last phrase here, like I said, it's recorded at a later time. And the Pharisees overhear it and they say, uh, they said they loved money. The Pharisees who loved money, they heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. They were sneering at him. They didn't understand. The light within them truly was darkness. And what it cost them was enormous. In John eleven forty eight, 48, the, the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law, they said, if we let Jesus go on teaching this way, if we let him go on, then everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they will take away both our temple and our nation. They were waiting for Jesus to go away because what did they value? They valued their temple and their nation. Earthly treasures and they were storing up. They were hoarding to protect the temple and the nation. And they lost both of them. In 70 AD, Rome came 
and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed it. Jesus, they could have had it all with him. And he said, I, Jesus said, you know, I, I would have gathered you, how I would have gathered you to me, but you would not. You would not come to me and have life. And they lost every, all of the earthly treasures they lost because they didn't take Jesus. And so it was all for nothing. What could have been done? What could have been done? Is a question for, well, for the historians and for speculation. We don't know. But those who followed Jesus, they continued on. And I, I shared this, when I shared this in McLaurin, I said, so when it comes to issues of money or wealth, perhaps the best image we can have is one of flow. It's coming in. Whatever blessings we have, when they come to us, are they for us? We get to enjoy them, but they're not just for us. They're for those around us. And it's with every blessing. If it's money, money comes in, you bless the kids, you bless the wife, you bless the church, you bless people. It's in and out. When spiritual gifts come to you, we had some amazing praise and worship earlier, and I think we have another song or two yet. I was so blessed by that because there are people who have received a gift from God and they're giving it out. In and out. Any gifts you receive, if you have been given a a responsibility or a promotion or anything, we need to get it in our mind that this is for me, but it's not for me. The blessings of God and the provision of God, they come to me and I just want them to go through me to somebody else, trusting that there's going to be a fresh supply for me. I can give more than I have and I know that God will fill. I can, I can pour out what's being poured in because God gives with such an abundance. I can't outgive what he can put in. And he has already promised that we will receive the fullness of the world and the fullness of Christ. We will be with him. And I talked about this and my grandfather, who was sitting in the front, turned to his wife and said, spiritual constipation. <laughs> and I said, yes. That is, if, if it's coming to you, but it's not going anywhere, that is what that is called. <laughs> Spiritual constipation. And we had a good laugh over that. But the, probably the most important key in, in all of this is to, to understand what is treasure in heaven. We understand what earthly treasure is. I think we all understand that well. But what is treasure in heaven? What is the goal here? What is the target? And I have six things. Number one, Jesus. Jesus is the treasure of the greatest treasure of all. And he's not here. He's in you and he's in me by his spirit. But he is waiting for us in heaven. I've gone to prepare a place for you. There is a human being. He's still a human. There's a human being in heaven waiting for us. So if you don't know Jesus, there's your first priority. Get to know him. Don't rest until you have him. The second is the people of God. The people of God are an inestimable treasure. 
think about the relationships. <clears throat> I think about some of the faces that I've seen here, that I've seen, like, from my childhood. And I get to come back 20 years later, and they're interested in my life, and I get to share about what's going on in my life, and I get to see what, that they're still faithfully going on here. And it just, like, it's, it's such a bl- blessed and pure experience. Human connection, that's where we're bound together by Christ, is just the sweetest thing. It is such a treasure, and it fills our hearts like nothing else in this world can. And so invest in the people of God wherever you find them. Get to know them. Get to love them. And the third one is, I say, the not yet people of God. And those of us who have friends, and we have that human connection, but it's not one that's shared, that we can't share Jesus in that relationship yet. Pray for them. Reach out to them. Bless them. Say, God, how treasure them. Treasure them. Treasure them. The not yet people of God. What does Paul say in, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, say, what is my crown? What is my joy before the Lord? What is my boasting? Is it not you? I was talking with a, a person when I was in junior high or high school, my cousins invited me to a 30-hour famine at their church in DeBolt. He was an int- and he was the speaker there. And he had done an internship at Gospel Light Church in DeBolt. This is 21 years later this weekend. He's back in the area. And he sends me a message. And he says, hey, I'm in town. Do you want to hang out? I'm like, who are you? <laughs> but, but he remembered me. I went and talked to him. And he just said, He's, yeah, I was just blown away by how he remembered me. And he said, you know, I just meet with people and share, I share stories of God and I see what happens. And, and maybe they come to faith, maybe they don't, but, but I just share with people. I share my life because God's, he, I know he's put such, he's forgiven me my sin, that's great. I'm going to be in heaven, that's great. And I just want to share that. And the way that he reached out to me just reminded me that, yes, it's about people. And also, treasures in heaven is the righteous deeds done in faith. And by this I'm talking about visible things, okay? When you step out in faith and people see you and people see that, that's a tre- there's treasure in heaven for that. There's a reward for that where you step out in faith with giving or you step out in faith and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna stand for Christ when it's hard, you're going to do what's right in a public way, treasure in heaven. And righteous deeds done in secret, things that nobody but God will know that you have done. But you've done it for truth and you've done it for him. That's treasure in heaven. It's stored up for you because God saw it. This is what Jesus was talking about before with the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers. He said, don't pray like them. Don't give like them. Don't fast like them because they do it so other people can see. And that's the only reward they're going to get. It's already been cashed out. But the stuff that only God sees, that's going to be cashed out too. It's waiting. 
the reward is waiting there. And there are prayers that you pray in secret that nobody else knows about, and God answers them. There are things that you do in secret that they make a difference that you would, you, even you won't see it. But you're going to find out when you get to heaven, and you're going to be blown away. And you're going to be so glad that you did it. So the things you do in secret, that's a heavenly treasure. God knows, and he always repays. He honors those who honor him. And the, these last two things, these deeds, they're tied to the praise of God the Father. When we arrive, even if, even if our treasure is small, okay, even if our heavenly treasure it's not as big as we maybe think it is. It probably is bigger than you think it is, just so you know. But even if it's small, do you know what you're going to hear when you show up before God the Father? Do you know what you're going to hear from, from Jesus? Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's going to be awesome. We got work to do still, though, before we get to there. So those, I want you to remember those things. That is heavenly treasure. Those are heavenly treasures. And Jesus says to store them up, to do it, to go and act and will and choose and live and do it. Make these things your goal. Start turning your heart in that direction. Through the praise of God, through deeds done in secret, through just loving Jesus. And even if you show up like the thief on the cross in the last like minute, it's like he just got Jesus and that's it. It's still going to be beyond our wildest dreams. Okay, I'm going to close with what I consider to be a very good example of what it means to store up heavenly treasure. There was a man many, many, many years ago who had just received a job teaching at a prestigious university and he had went out and he bought pictures. He bought a nice picture to furnish his house. And he got back and a woman came to his door clothed with a, basically a heavy bed sheet and that was it. And it was kind of a cold winter day and this is before there was electricity. There was in the 1600s. And, and he went, he reached in his pocket, oh, but he didn't have any money. He had just spent it on his picture. And he didn't, and so he found something else. But God struck him in that moment and said, oh, I, I went and purchased a picture and I, I purchased it with that woman's coat. And I didn't know it. And it's, it just, God just struck him with that thought. And so in his first year of employment, he earned 30 pounds that year. 30 pounds. And in the time, it was like about $70,000, 60 or $70,000, depending on how you want to do the conversion. That would be his like annual income, okay? His expenses for that year, 28 pounds. He gave away two pounds. Well, the following year, his income pretty much doubled. Now he's making 60 pounds. But he decided he was going to 
continued to live his life on the income he had. It was sufficient. So he lived on the same amount of expenses, and he was able to give away 32 pounds. Well, the following year, his income rose again to 90 pounds. His expenses, he kept them the same, 28. He gave away 62. At one point, due to his publishing and his other writings, he earned an income of 14,000 pounds, the equivalent of about $2.8 million or so by today's. That was his annual income. His expenses, 28 pounds. Gave away 1,372 pounds that year, according to his personal ledgers. He said, I can't help... But when they, when they asked him about it, the, the, the tax agency, they said, listen, you've got to be doing something funky with the books. And he said, listen, I don't have, this is honestly what it is. The only thing that I have, I've got one silver spoon in, I have, I have one silver spoon at home. I don't have any special plateware or anything like that. I have my library of books, which I can't help but keep. But, but every, in, every other instance of, in every other instance of my possessions, my own hands will be the executors of my estate. He gave everything he had. When he died, all he had was his coat, his library, and change in his pocket. Everything else, he, had, he, he executed his own estate. He sent it all away. And he came home, who knows what sort of treasure he came home to, and the people he influenced. That was uh, John Wesley. John Wesley, who wrote many, many hymns and, and was a powerful evangelist. And it's an inspiring example for us of how we can seek to glorify God and, and give ourselves for the accumulation of heavenly treasure. We can store it up up there. Uh, Father God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I pray that these words would uh, impact each one in the way that you have designed. Pray that with your love and with your compassion and with that upward call that Paul talks about. Do everything for the upward call of Christ. I haven't attained it yet, but I press toward it, Lord. I pray that each one here would be encouraged and challenged by the love of the Father and by the opportunity that lies before them, Lord. Each one of us, help us to live in the light of these words. And I thank you, Jesus, that you gave up your life your comfort, the greatest treasure of all. And you came and you gave yourself for us that we could know true and lasting happiness, true and lasting peace. We can't wait to see you face to face and embrace in heaven, Lord, with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.